0: Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Paul A. Lombardo to discuss his book, Three Generations, No Imbeciles, Eugenics, the Supreme Court, and Buck v. Bell, originally published in 2008 by Johns Hopkins University Press and updated given contemporary events in reproductive politics in 2022. Three generations of imbeciles are not enough were the infamous words U.S. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote in 1927. In Buck v. Bell, an almost unanimous court upheld a Virginia law allowing the sterilization of people the state found to be, quote, socially inadequate and, quote, feeble-minded. This landmark decision allowed the eugenics movement to take full effect with multiple states passing similar laws. In three generations, no imbeciles, eugenics, the Supreme Court, and Buck v. Bell, Dr. Paul Lombardo unpacks the case of an individual, Carrie Buck, to argue that the case not only represents the collective power of the eugenics movement in the early 20th century, but an individual miscarriage of justice. Using extensive archival sources, Dr. Lombardo demonstrates that Carrie Buck was neither a, quote, moral degenerate or, quote, feeble-minded. She was a rape victim of sound mind. The powerful eugenics lobby manufactured a case, and a sympathetic court gave them a precedent that justified Carrie Buck's sterilization and over 60,000 sterilizations in the following decades. Three Generations No Imbeciles frames the history of sterilization as essential to understanding contemporary legal fights over birth control and abortion. Does the Constitution's promise of liberty include the right to become pregnant or end a pregnancy? Dr. Lombardo's epilogue and afterward outlines the connections between Buck and modern cases involving abortion, disability rights, and reparations for those sterilized. Dr. Polly Lombardo is Regents Professor and Bobby Lee Cook Professor of Law at the Center for Law, Health and Society at Georgia State University. He's published extensively on topics in health law, medical legal history, and bioethics, and is best known for his work on the legal history of the American eugenics movement. I am delighted to welcome him to new books in political science.
2: Thank you, Susan.
0: So I've been talking to a lot of people about your book and many have actually never heard of this famous Supreme Court case. So let's start with what we'd know about this individual, Carrie Buck, if we had just read the extremely short 1927 decision by Oliver Wendell Holmes in, in Buck v. Bell.
2: Well, we don't know very much about Carrie Buck. We know that she was a young woman. Uh, by the time she got to the court, she was, uh, set, well, she, by the time she went to trial, she was 17. There was a trial in Amherst County, which happened in 1924. So by the time she got to the Supreme Court, she was, uh, I believe, 20 years old. Um, she never went to the Supreme Court, of course, so the papers that followed her case went there. Uh, the justices themselves never saw her or met her. And they describe her as a poor um, white woman. And they, and they pick up the language really the language from uh, uh, people who testified in her case and people who sent information in, the doctors primarily who had examined her. And she is called a feeble-minded white woman who was committed to the state colony. That's an institution in Amherst County, Virginia. Um, She's the daughter of a feeble-minded mother, the mother of an illegitimate feeble-minded child, 18 years old, it says here, at the time of the trial uh, in 1924, so she had just turned 18. Uh, We don't really know much else about her. If you just read the opinion, we hear a description of, again, the testimony in the case, but uh, relatively little about the kind of person she was or anything really about her life.
0: So as you note in the book, you know, Buck Bell was about her, but not really about her. It was motivated by wider uh, movements in the United States and the progressive movement with regard to eugenics. So can you tell us a little bit about how eugenics and the eugenics movement was the backdrop for this case about this uh, uh, about this one individual woman from Virginia who the court never saw?
2: yes you 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 raise an important point about about the the backdrop of the case, and that is that <clears throat> this is really a book I, I've been asked well, who was the main character in this book is it carrie buck and 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 to me um i would have I would have liked to have written more about Carrie Buck. I wrote everything that I could find and everything that she told me, but I didn't really have uh the kind of detail that you'd like to have for a biography, and some people wanted a biography, and I said well. It's not the Carrie Buck story. The, the main character in this, in this story is the case, the case and how it uh, comes to be and how it fits into the history of the American eugenics movement and, for, and the larger history of, of the rights of reproduction in this country. So the, the backdrop is this. There's an uh, enormously um, well-known and well-discussed um, um, history of, of eugenics uh, and I'm not talking about what was done by scholars. I'm talking about at the time. Uh, at the time of the Buck case, um, it, it is possible now to, to research this by using you know all the sources that are digitized, newspapers, magazines, and things like that, and and say without really any question that if you were a person who went to school. Um, Add on to that, maybe a person who read a newspaper every now and then, you would have heard the word eugenics, and you might have had a variety of things that you thought about it. Um, you might have thought that it was something that was quite uh, um, fascinating and exciting because it was, uh, it was the sort of thing that people were so uh, used to hearing connected to health, connected to science, connected to medicine that there were even advertisements in the newspapers. Um, the eugenic corn was sold. Eugenic pharmaceuticals, <clears throat> eugenic uh, um, baby carriages, uh, even eugenic motor cars. People understood this word to be to have a kind of uh, positive um, um, significance in many ways because it was connected to health. Uh, and what they called hygiene and clean living. You might also have heard that uh, people were very afraid, and they used the word eugenics to signal many of their fears. They were, they were afraid of all of the immigrants coming over from, from Europe, particularly uh, at the time of Carrie Buck's childhood. Um, The United States had passed an Immigration Restriction Act in 1924, the very year that this case comes to trial. Um, They were afraid of people who were uh, different, who seemed to be filling the institutions in the country, uh, making taxes go up, hospitals and asylums and jails and and, uh, homes for, like the one that Carrie went to, the homes for the feeble-minded and the epileptic, as they were called. So... You would have also not not only had this this uh, positive notion about eugenics, you would have had a very negative one that traced it to all of the problems of society: crime and poverty and disease and and uh, and, and rampant Im- immigration of strange people who spoke strange languages and looked different, people who were swarthy Mediterraneans or Jews from Eastern Europe. These are the people that the federal Uh, law was meant to keep out of the country. And so you would have known if you were a reader that eugenics was connected to those things too. Eugenics was the way of changing those trends and getting rid of those kinds of people who may have been uh, scary to you. So the context for this is a a lot of knowledge that people had when they went to school. They they would, uh, in many, many cases, have read, if they went through high school, they would have read textbooks that included a commentary about eugenics, textbooks that told them that heredity was something that was biological, something that you could predict, something that you could use to trace um, all these terrible things that were happening in society. And they would have read about the families that were uh, supposedly the, the fountain of this kind of problem, this model families, models not in the good sense, models in the worst sense, um, models like the jukes. Uh, 19th century book, which uh, almost everybody heard of. Um, they, they, it, was, it was something that was certainly in the textbooks and biology textbooks or uh, even history textbooks. So eugenics was not a strange notion to most people in the early 20th century, and it was a notion that they, they might have encountered not just in school, but certainly in popular literature. Uh, And even in their religious lives, they would have heard sermons about eugenics. They would have heard uh, how many preachers connected this to um, social decline. This was something that, as preachers said, um, was born out through the Bible verse that said that uh, uh, the sins of the father will be descended to the sons unto the third generation. Uh, and, And that verse was often used Uh, to to signal the kinds of concerns people had about eugenics. Just as on the other side, there were the famous Fitter Family Contests at state fairs and county fairs even. And the winners would receive a medal that had a Bible verse in it from the book of Psalms. Yay, I have a goodly heritage. So Buck happens in the middle of this um, very, very large amount of attention to heredity. Uh, among a generation of people who primarily grew up on the farm. So they understood heredity. They knew about the cows and the horses and the birds and the bees. They knew that characteristics of one generation often passed down to the others biologically, uh, and that this could be a concern.
0: And in the book, you underline that this uh, idea of social decline also involves sexuality and discomfort with Sexuality and that impacts uh, how Carrie Buck is talked about in some of the documents as well. Can you say just a little bit more about how, in addition to concerns about you know who who will take up tax dollars, that sexuality has as well as fear of immigration um, and the underlying racism?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm often asked if I can uh, boil down eugenics into uh, some small soundbite, and, and it's not easy to do because it meant a lot of different things. But what I come up with is uh, eugenics was about sex, and it was about money. <clears throat> um, the money part really has to do with the cost of social problems. Um, as I said, crime, poverty, disease, those are things fill institutions, um those things require you to, you know, put, put up uh, uh, barriers to people's entry into society, and those people eventually m- mean your tax dollars go up. So that's the money part, and that was a very clearly a motive to people in the eugenics movement. They talked about it all the time. Sex is the other part, and when I say sex, I say that in the most broad sense to, to signal not just sexuality, but certainly gender issues as well. Um, the very first eugenic sterilization laws in places like Indiana and California and Washington focused on people who could be uh, uh, charged with engaging in illegal or unconventional sexual practices. Um, Obvious criminal practices like rape, but less obvious practices like same-sex relationships, um, um, even even something... uh, uh, like masturbation. That was the focus of the Indiana law in the very first case. And so anything that had to do with, with sexuality, what the, what the um, eugenists often fo- uh, discussed as breeding more generally, anything that had to do with sex was likely to be a target of people in the eugenics movement. And we have to remember that at the time, um, this is the most active time, uh, between 1900 and, the, and, and 1930 of people like Anthony Comstock, who wants to rid America of anything that, uh, as he said, reeked of lust, um, meaning anybody talking about writing about, uh, uh publishing books about, or otherwise being engaged in something having to do with sex, um. Uh, Comstock says that lust is the cause of all criminality. And so he's able to get a federal law passed and many states passed similar laws saying you can't talk about this stuff. We don't want it in the schools. We don't want it in the books. We certainly don't want it in the mails.
0: And we're recording this on a day when actually many Americans are waiting for the Supreme Court to, in fact, rule on the Comstock Act, which is still on the books and still potentially affecting the ability to mail birth control in the United States. Uh, Stay tuned on that, and we've done a podcast on the Comstock Act, which is also available in the archive. Paul, you said that this was something that was everywhere. It was in newspapers. It was something that people learned about and educated. You didn't have to be that educated, but we had some very educated people on the Supreme Court. We have Chief Justice Taft, who had been president previously, and we have Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, considered to be by many people one of the tallest intellects that had been on the Supreme Court by the early, late 20s. Um, The language in this decision is very harsh. It was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes. He said, for example, and I'm just quoting from the case, it is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind, close quote. And so can you tell us a little bit about uh, how Holmes came to write this decision and, and how it was possible for eight people to sign on to this extremely um, sharp language.
2: Well, Holmes, of course, is the darling of the Supreme Court at the time of the Buck opinion. He has appeared um, in the, only a short time before this on the cover of Time magazine uh, when he moves into his 80s. He's the oldest person on the court, the longest serving person on the court at the time. And he is from a famous family. Um, His father of the same name, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., is a physician uh, who teaches at Harvard Medical School, who is a scientist who's written um, uh, really extraordinary articles in the scientific realm about um, about how you need to uh, be clean when you do surgery. This was a new idea in the 19th century, how you needed to wash your hands and and use uh, antiseptic techniques uh, and this is a way of avoiding um, the death of, of mothers who became infected during childbirth. He also happens to be—I uh, I hesitate to say on the side because it was hard to tell what he was doing more of—but he also happens to be a famous author, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who was, writes novels, he writes poems, he writes essays. Um, he's the uh, writes in the North American Review constantly. He is known as the author of a couple couple poems that school children back years ago, when some of us were much younger, used to have to memorize. Uh, the One Horse Shay is a famous one, but he also writes about the famous ship in Boston Harbor, the Constitution, Old Ironsides. So the Holmes Senior is famous, and he's, he's also well known for saying things like, um, the way to improve society is by to pick better grandparents. Um, so he's very much uh, concerned about this idea of heredity, and he writes about it. And of course, his son, Oliver Jr. Wendell, I believe they called him at home, was a, um, um, a good study. And when he came down to breakfast every morning, his father is reputed to have said, uh, say something clever. Um, and uh, if he said something clever, he got an extra uh, dose of marmalade. Well, the Buck opinion is a great example of Holmes trying to say something clever. He He's known, uh, he was called at the time the Yankee come down from Olympus. Um, he's known for his phrase making. He's known as the person who who writes things like uh, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater or you can't really uh, um, regulate the First Amendment unless there's a clear and present danger um, so he's someone who people look to for, uh, for the soundbite of the era. Uh, and in the Buck case, he gives them a soundbite. He says, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Now, there have been a few libraries full of books written about the Buck case. Well, I'm convinced that most of what happened in that opinion was not original to Holmes. The phrases that he uses pop up. Uh, all over the place. This business of manifestly unfit. Um, the idea that you had to have generation after generation of problems uh, in order to trace heredity. He, I think, he borrows those from other people who write about it, particularly a man named J. Ewing Mears, who was a surgeon and an and a, a ardent uh, supporter of sterilization, who actually died uh, just uh, uh, earlier than the Buck opinion. So, so Holmes. Uh, is a, a, a voracious reader. He knows what the eugenics movement is saying. He's very much in favor of it. We know that from his letters. And he captures this in a really, really short, only three-page opinion. Um, Oliver uh, Holmes is on the court at the same time, uh, of course, as uh, Chief Justice Taft. Taft, after being president, really wanted to be a judge. And he gets that wish when he's appointed to the Supreme Court and he goes to Holmes to give him this, this opinion writing task with a fair amount of frustration because he's, he's having a, an administrator's problem of getting work back quickly. And he gives assignments to the other justices and they sit on them for weeks, sometimes months. And, uh, and Taft tells his wife about this when he writes home every other day. And, uh, and he says, well, and I gave this opinion to Holmes and he gave it back to me over a weekend basically just took the weekend and dashed it off. He's great, he's, you know, he's older than all the rest of them, but he's still a better writer and he's still a better worker. So he praises Holmes. Holmes, for his own sake, uh, writes to one of his friends and, and lets them know that he got a fair amount of pushback from his colleagues about how harsh this opinion was. But, but he says, after all, in the end, they have to allow a man to say what he thinks. So Holmes is very proud of the opinion. Um, and it becomes really the rallying cry that, that uh, quiets many, if not most, of the critics of eugenic sterilization then in 1927.
0: Before we turn to how egregiously wrong much of what Holmes says in the opinion is, both in terms of Carrie uh, Buck's own situation and eugenics and, and also how due process is violated every step, I just want to talk about how you came to write this book because it's a great story. Uh, it wasn't something that came from earlier research. You you were reading a modern newspaper, so can can you just recall that for for everybody?
2: Yes, I'm um I'm very attached to to newspapers. Have been most of my adult life, most of my reading life, really. Uh, and actually, I spent a summer. I spent the Watergate summer, the summer that Richard Nixon. Um, uh, resigned writing for a, uh, um, a local newspaper in Chicago. Um, so I've always been been fairly uh, um, attuned to what goes on in papers, and I spend a lot of time now reading all newspapers, so it's part of the historical research. But at the time I was a student. I was a graduate student. Um, and, you know, invention is, of course, the mother, or, or necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I had to write a seminar paper, and I just happened to be having breakfast in a little... Cafe where somebody left the local paper behind, and there was an article there about a woman who'd been sterilized, and the, head, and the headline said uh, um, uh, something about uh, uh, the fact that she couldn't have any babies. Um, um, they, they took away her right to have babies. And, and when I read the article, um, I, I said, uh, wow, I'd never heard of that. I, I had no idea what it was about. And why was it in the local paper? Well, it was in the local paper because the woman was from the local area, and she was named Doris Buck. The name didn't mean anything to me at the time, but as I read further, I realized she was the sister of the then infamous person, Carrie Buck, whose Supreme Court case had been decided and who also happened to be living in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I was going to school. So I, I used that article as the jumping off point for doing research about the case thinking I might be able to get a seminar paper out of it, and I did. Um, but what I found along the way was that the not only was Charlottesville the place where Carrie Buck was from and where her case really began, uh, but it, it, was a, it was the place where the lawyer who brought this suit uh, and took it to the Supreme Court had gone to school. When he died, he was a judge. He left all of his papers at the University of Virginia, and they were sitting there in the library basement, virtually untouched um, they hadn't been really hadn't been numbered uh, there were more than 160 boxes of material uh, when i got to them and i had to put numbers on them because nobody had really gone through them systematically so this became for me just not just a paper but uh, obviously a lot more um, and i eventually made made it the subject of my doctoral dissertation tracing the life of this lawyer um, who, had, who became not just a lawyer but then a legislator and then a judge uh, and how he had put this case together um, in support of the institution, uh, the Virginia Colony for the Epileptic and the Feeble-Minded, um, which he had helped to found. So um, it was largely chance that I, that I happened to have my eggs and bacon that morning in that place Um, and even more fortunate for me that I was just in the right place where many of the records that were indispensable to the study were stored.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: So let's talk about the documents and the story that they ended up telling you about Carrie Buck's situation. And the, the opinion assumes, as you say, that she is a poor white woman and that she's quote unquote feeble-minded and that her child is feeble-minded. And that her mother uh, was is also feeble-minded. But the documents that you looked at really told a very, very different story about, about her. And also, uh, we assume that lawyers act in defense of their clients. That is one of the assumptions of rule of law and the idea of putting two lawyers who will combat with their ideas and defend each side. But that actually isn't what happened, uh, as you show in the book in this case. So tell us a little bit about these documents, uh, what they show about who she was and how it was different from Holmes's depiction of her. And then we'll talk a little bit about how her case was handled um, by her attorney.
2: Well, my starting point, um, once I got into the Aubrey Strode document, Strode was the lawyer for the hospital in this case, for the asylum. Um, I w- started reading state reports. These were public reports. These were not private. They were written every year for the legislature to, r- to report on what had happened in state institutions. And what I was surprised by was that if I read <laughs> reports from each of the uh, state mental hospitals in Virginia. The the rhetoric just got more and more dramatic. Uh, how terrible it was that these institutions were being filled with with uh, loose women who had been picked up in the red light districts in the cities, who were who were luring soldiers and sailors on the seacoast before they went overseas for the First World War, uh, who were infecting them with diseases, uh, and how everybody and who were having children then who were like them. Uh, unable to control themselves, and feeble-minded. So this is the language that's in state reports, written by doctors. Um, the, the lawyer for uh, the hospital was asked several times to change the law and make it easier to commit people to these institutions, and he did that. That's Arbus Strode. Um, uh, he's asked eventually to write a sterilization law, and he, he, has, uh, he hesitates for a bit, and then he's contacted by people in New York at the Eugenics Record Office, who tell him that they've discovered a case. Um, um, he hears about the case actually even earlier um, from the doctor who is his client, a man named Albert Pretty. And Doctor Pretty tells him he's about to put someone uh, in the hospital who is the mother of a feeble-minded child, and her her mother. The grandmother is also in the institution. Um, all this information goes to lots of people at the same time, including the people at the Eugenics Record Office, um, who say, "My goodness, we've we've been studying this stuff for decades. We've never seen three generations all of the same family. It's a perfect case." So Strode builds his case around the assertion that they have three generations clearly hereditary moral degeneracy. He says they're all women. Um, they're all unchaste. This is the same story that we've seen in the Jukes from the 19th century, or the other book that everybody read, The Calicax, written by a famous psychologist named Goddard. And this is what happens when women who are feeble minded uh, are allowed to roam in society. They, they get pregnant, they have babies, they fill up the institutions and in the welfare roles even more. So that's the plaintiff side. Perfect case, three generations all fallen women are at least uh, potentially fallen in the case of the baby. The real driver in this case, though, is not the lawyer. It's the doctor. It's Dr. Albert Pretty, And Dr. Pretty is, is a man who is very well co- connected p- politically. He's actually served in the state legislature. Um, he is uh, constantly in touch with people who represent his district because they've helped him build the institution in which his own portrait hangs. He he is the founder of the Virginia Colony for the uh, Epileptic and Feeble-Minded. And his real mission, he is a kind of local uh, Anthony Comstock. He is a person who is obsessed with the idea that people are out there having sex and they aren't married and they are gonna be on the welfare rolls. And so he tries very hard to uh, work with local welfare officials, particularly in the big cities like Richmond, in getting more women off the streets. And he pushes a little too hard in one case and has some people arrested and brought to his institution, and he sterilizes them. There's no law that allows this, he just does it. Uh, And he gets sued for that. And he is so angry because he has had to commute On the train even in his buckboard to Richmond to be at trial to be accused of assaulting someone surgically Uh, and he's furious about this he doesn't lose the case but he's warned by the judge don't do this again until you have a law that lets you so he goes to his lawyer and says I need a law that will protect me because I want to sterilize people and that's where the Virginia law comes from it's a way of immunizing this doctor and his colleagues who want to sterilize people in institutions and so, when the case uh, finally appears, Carrie Buck being the lead character here as the, uh, as the then um, pregnant uh, daughter of a woman who was in a state institution, and herself is, according to the uh, plaintiff's arguments, obviously a morally degenerate person because she's not married and she's pregnant. Uh, the baby is born, the baby is examined. They're not quite sure what to make of this child. Uh, something not quite right, says the Red Cross nurse. Something peculiar, says the eugenics expert. But that's about as far as they go. But that's enough, because that's enough for Dr. Pretty to say, I've got three generations here. Let's make a case out of this. And so they look around for a lawyer. Uh, Mr. Strode is asked by his board to find some competent lawyer who will represent the uh, defendant in this case, Carrie Buck. And so um, Carrie Buck is, uh, um, uh, these, these, these terms plaintiff and defendant shift depending on what level of the case you're at. So sometimes she's called the plaintiff because she's actually suing the state Other times she's the defendant because she's the one who's going to be sterilized. So uh, in any event, Carrie Buck is the person who is, who is slated for sterilization. Um, Strode says, I've got the perfect person Irving Whitehead. Well, everybody knows Irving Whitehead. He's a lawyer who works at a bank in Baltimore, commutes back and forth to his home in Virginia. Um, He's been a lawyer for many years, has lots of experience. Um, And so he is named to represent Carrie Buck. Uh, And he is paid, as is Strode, uh, the going rate, Um, paid quite handsomely for his work in defending uh, this young lady.
0: But he doesn't really defend her, uh, as you outline in the book, because his he doesn't seem to be uh, he doesn't seem to be thinking about how to stop her from being sterilized. And he continues to have conversations with the other side. Can you outline just a little bit about how this sort of doesn't follow the normal patterns of two attorneys who are supposed to be uh, facing off in a courtroom?
2: Well, Strode is a very meticulous lawyer, and he writes up uh, um, um, extremely uh, detailed briefs uh, and presents a lot of evidence in the case uh, to have Carrie Buck sterilized. They're in the uh, Amherst County courthouse. And there in uh, in Virginia, uh, Strode argues that uh, he brings several lawyers. He deposes people and, and actually, brings in an expert from the Eugenics Record Office in New York who testifies saying that Carrie Buck is feeble-minded and so is her mother and so it looks like is her daughter. Um, And so she clearly fits into this language of someone who is socially inadequate and needs to be sterilized to protect the state from more of the same kind of people. And so Stroke's case is very detailed. Um, His counterpart, Irving Whitehead, however, um, doesn't seem to have done much... Um, real research at all. Um, Strode presents something like ten witnesses. Whitehead presents none. Um, when they uh, when information is brought in that that the any first year law student would object to, saying that's either irrelevant or that's uh, hearsay. You're talking. You're quoting people who are not in the courtroom. Um, Strode uh, uh, presents the information, then Whitehead lets it come in. He doesn't object. Um, Whitehead seems a passive um, member of this uh, defense team, and he's supposed to be leading it. Um, the, the case is eventually decided at the, at the trial court level in favor of the law, upholding the law, uh, vindicating Dr. Pretty and his lawyer Strode. Uh, and Whitehead then goes to the meeting, not with his client, Carrie Buck, uh, we don't know if he have even met Carrie Buck before the trial. There's no evidence that he visited her. Um, there's no evidence that he did any real research for the case either. But after this case is already decided by a judge at the trial court, he then goes to the meeting of the State Board of Hospitals where all the doctors who direct the state institutions are meeting, and he tells them this case is in great shape. He just lost. He says, this case is in wonderful shape Uh, to go to the court of last resort, which, of course, is the United States Supreme Court. We could not have had a better result. So um, instead of going to his client, Kerry, and saying, I'm going to fight hard for you on appeal, or this is a bad result, but we're going to keep going, he goes to his opponent's uh, no doubt with a smile on his face and says, this is great. This is exactly where we want it to be. To me, this is the most clear uh, mark of his betrayal of his client and the fraud that he perpetrated on the court. Now, if you go further into the records, you realize that it's. this is not surprising because Whitehead was a supporter of sterilization. After Dr. Pretty had been sued for sterilizing people without legal sanction, he writes a letter to Pretty saying, you did exactly the right thing, you know, we should sterilize more of these people. He had actually been on the board and voted in favor of the sterilizations, the illegal sterilizations that Dr. Pretty did. He was a member of the board of the, of the institution. There's even a plaque on one of the buildings that has his name on it. Um, so while the court knew that he was someone familiar, uh, had been a member of the board, they were assured that, that uh, this was an armed length, uh, arm's length uh, transaction. And none of this information came out uh, until decades later.
0: There's sort of an interesting character in the book, which are sort of the Catholic press and the National Council of Catholic Men, uh, where they they seem, in fact, horrified by sterilization and do want to contribute to arguments, yet. Fearing backlash against Catholics who in this period are, are not accepted uh, by everyone as equal citizens. They're acting in the background. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what they're up to and, and why they are so uh, integral to this, this story?
2: Yes. um, There were a, a, If you look at all the records of the case, of course, there, there are a lot. And I, I, I posted all of these on my website, uh, buckvbell.com, so that people could actually see what happened in the case uh, at the legal level. And not only do we have the transcript of the trial, but we have the briefs on appeal to the Virginia uh, Court of Appeals, the Virginia Supreme Court. Um, they uphold the law. Strode and Whitehead present uh, briefs to them. Strode's is lengthy and detailed. Whitehead is cursory and very short. Uh, And then they go on after that to the United States Supreme Court uh, uh, with a similar kind of response. Um, Whitehead puts a little more effort into this, but not much more. Uh, And then uh, he receives a a letter uh, from a Catholic men's group, which had been tracing, been tracking these sterilization cases Um, Over the years, Uh, and they get in touch with him and say, "Gosh, you missed a lot. You know, you really, you you didn't raise the most important questions. There are critics out there you could have cited. You might have even brought them in as witnesses, but you didn't do that. Uh, We'd like to help you form a another brief for rehearing and ask the court for another shot at this." Um, Whitehead, no doubt, is very embarrassed at this point because he was flying under the radar. Uh, no one had called him out on his poor performance. Um, and so he um, tells them that uh, he'll consider this, and he eventually does take their brief, uh, which was written by them. He charges the colony and the state hospital board for, his, uh, for producing the brief, another fraud. And, and then he files it in the Supreme Court, of course, by then the court had already decided, uh and this was an after the fact um we, we might say Hail Mary pass, in which uh uh in which it was pretty certain that he was going to lose, but he went through the motions anyway, and he did lose. The the petition for rehearing was was not granted, they rarely were. But in that brief we have most of the arguments that he should have raised the first time around. There were several that he wouldn't that he wouldn't uh Um, Put in the brief because it would have embarrassed him that he didn't raise those questions during the trial. So um, We do have in the background um, um, People who are paying a lot of attention the church was consistently against as as a group consistently against these uh, um, uh, These laws uh, Over the time that they were passed and of course that all culminates with the papal encyclical which says this explicitly um, uh, in the, after the Buck case.
0: There's one justice who dissents from the case, uh, Pierce Butler, who is the only Catholic justice on the court at the time. He doesn't leave a dissent. Uh, do we have any idea why as to he did not agree in Buck feebel the only one?
2: Well, we only have speculation. We have We have a comment from Holmes who says, again, in his correspondence to someone, oh, I bet I bet he goes with the church, says Holmes. Um, he didn't expect uh, Butler to vote with him. Um, if you do any research on Butler, uh, he's an interesting uh, character himself. He's one of the, uh, the so-called four horsemen who was against everything in the New Deal um, and, and against uh, uh, a lot of the sort of experimental legislation that came out under, under Franklin Roosevelt. Um, he votes... Uh, in this case, without leaving an opinion, again not unusual at the time. There weren't nearly as many um, long dissenting opinions then, and he didn't leave any comments about why. Um, I know that years later, I had a conversation with Justice Blackman. Uh, Justice Blackman, of course, known known as the author of uh, Roe v. Wade, and 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 Justice Blackman said that. Uh, When he was young, he would often go to formal banquets and such and meetings, uh, and Justice Butler would be the speaker and he would be introduced, and they always made a joke out of it. They would say, um, uh, according to Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, three generations of imbeciles are enough, but Justice Butler, our next speaker, dissents. (laughs) And so... um, Butler Butler lived with that, and it's hard to know why he did it. Um, maybe maybe his thoughts had to do with his uh, uh, um, beliefs about sterilization, and he was and he was uh, uh, convinced by the by the various uh, priests he had talked with. Um, he also had a little skeleton in his own closet, which I write about in the book, which is he was he was the um, executor of his brother's estate. His brother was quite wealthy. Uh, and his brother um, had uh, a child um, who was born by his uh, housekeeper to whom he was not married. Um, and, then, and they went to great lengths to hide that. And when Justice Butler, um, when, his, when his brother died and he took over the uh, administration of the estate, um, there was a very delicate uh, business of, of paying off this woman who wanted uh, her child to have a, a part in this estate. She didn't get it. So he was successful in in uh, keeping her away from the money that the brother had left. Um, but this all was written up in the newspapers. And so there was a sort of mini scandal about it that related to Justice Butler. Did this have anything to do with the Buck case? I have no idea. There's nobody way to know. It's purely speculation either way as to why he Uh, voted the way he did.
0: You mentioned Justice Blackman, author of Roe v. Wade. Um, And one of, I think, the sort of geniuses uh, elements of this book is that it is not only uh, a history that places a very, very famous case in historical context. It's not only an amazing work of forensic history that reveals fraud, lies, and um, sort of the scandal of a, of a sham case in favor of an individual woman who, who you actually end up interviewing shortly before she died. But the book also is arguing that these cases are relevant deeply to where we are now. Um, you note, for example, that in Roe v. Wade, Justice Blackman uses Buck v. Bell to justify the state's interest in third trimester fetuses and their lives, um, you you say that it doesn't it doesn't trump the power of a state to potentially issue a sterilization order of the kind affirmed in Buck, and you also cite elements of Casey that in which there is this recognition without naming uh, uh, that that there's that there's a similarity between the freedom to get pregnant and have a child versus to choose not to. Um, you updated this book in 2022 for publication, and you do so much to sort of catch up on how it is that people have thought about Buck v. Bell, how they've related Uh, the ways in which it relates to abortion politics. But that was before SCOTUS decided um, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. So I I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about how you see this case as essential to our understanding of the debates today over uh, reproductive freedom and whether the Constitution in any way protects any sort of liberty with regard to pregnancy.
2: Well, I I want to do that, but I think it's important to talk about a little bit the reason that the Buck case was such a fraud. Um, I mentioned the role of Irving Whitehead. Um, at the time that Roe versus Wade is written, Buck has not really been been uh, uh, explicated the way it has been now by not just me but many many other scholars. And what what brought me to uh, Uh, focus uh, so much on Buck was the the fraud of the case which was triggered by discovering uh, several things almost at the same time. The first was the the uh, records of Carrie Buck as a student. Um, She went to grade school through the sixth grade I believe in Charlottesville Virginia and she was taken out of school so that she could be basically the housekeeper for her foster parents. Her grade card said that she did just fine. Her deportment, her behavior was good. Um, She did well in a couple subjects, not so well in others, mostly a basically average performance. Nothing that suggested that she was, as as she had been accused of being, quote, mentally deficient, unquote. Um, But the real uh, find there was not Carrie's records, it was her daughter's records. Her daughter, Vivian, who was born just before this case starts, um, just before the case goes to trial, um, Vivian is a, a, a baby. She is taken away from Carrie uh, almost immediately. Um, Carrie's picture shows her, this is a picture that I didn't discover until the, the, almost the late 1990s. Carrie's picture shows her the day, of, the day before the trial with her mother, kind of a scowl on her face, and you realize she's just postpartum. She's just getting over having a baby taken away from her and then, and then being snatched up and sent to this institution. So there's reason for her to, to not feel well. Um, the baby is raised by the foster parents quite lovingly, uh, I think, and uh, they even gave her uh, a middle name after her foster mother, uh, and she's sent to the local school where she does, at least in the, uh, uh, in the second grade, uh, quite well. She's on the honor roll. She gets the measles then. She gets a secondary infection, and she dies at age eight. But she's on the honor roll. So clearly, um, there was nothing, quote, peculiar about her. The mother uh, is okay. The daughter is okay. The grandmother is somebody who's sick. Um, but still at the time of her uh commitment has has managed to save up several hundred dollars, which is a real sum of money in those days. So she's not the wastrel, uh, uh irresponsible person that they make her out to be. She may have had a problem with uh with drugs, with uh, uh, prohibited substances. That's not clear. But the the real uh the real takeaway is that the information presented to the court about Carrie Buck and her daughter certainly is false and so this was something that could have been determined by some good lawyering on the part of whitehead which never occurred
0: even basic lawyering really is what i think you document in the book and i think that that is the sort of most painful part about reading this book is that this is this is not oh my goodness something really difficult was missed it's that basics were missed and that there really was no attempt made to, to do two things. One, to do what uh, was trying to be done by the um, Catholic uh, men's group of lawyers, which is to make a principled case against the state's ability to sterilize people that it judges in not a very rigorous process to, to not, be of value to society such that they shouldn't reproduce, so that the principle, and the second, the individual. And as you say, and I really think it's an accurate, a lovely description of the book, this is a biography of a case, and cases always that come to the Supreme Court have to do with both an individual and a principle. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. And we, we always have to hold those two things in our hands. And I think what's brilliant about this book is the way in which it does both throughout. And therefore, by the time we you take it to the present, we have both the tragedy of Kerry Buck, but we also have the tragedy of this precedent and its legacy and the fact that the court hasn't actually worked out through those cases, Buck, Skinner, and others, the extent to which people have any liberty in, in their reproductive control.
2: I was criticized. Uh, I, I wrote my first law review article on this in 1985, and, and when it came out, there was some criticism from lawyers saying that I had second-guessed uh, people who were long dead. Uh, I had uh, not given them the benefit of the doubt. I had reached some conclusions that maybe weren't warranted. Well, I disagreed with that. And When I went back to write the book, I said, what would a lawyer have done? By then, I was on the faculty at the same school at the University of Virginia. And I I said, what would a lawyer have done who had this case? And so uh, I, I literally went to the place where the law school had been, which was adjacent to railroad tracks there in Charlottesville. And I walked from that place over to where Carrie Buck's house was, which took about maybe 10 minutes. And then I walked back and I pulled... Um, the books in the library that had been written and were available at the time the case occurred. And I went to my colleagues who were the law librarians and I said, how would I know whether these books were here? And they said, oh, well, we keep records of all that. They had an accession list, they went back to it, and they said all of those books were here in 1924 when this case was heard. Um, So any good lawyer, any competent lawyer, which was the description given for Irving Whitehead, Um, would simply have gone to the most convenient library right there, pulled those books, easy to find, and uh, read them, and then would have walked across the street, across the railroad tracks, and over to Carrie Buck's house and talked to her about what happened to her. They would have found out two things. They would have found out that, as we all learn in law school, First, you've got to find what the facts are. And the facts are that Carrie Buck was somebody who was in two different church choirs. That was pretty good evidence that she wasn't the kind of girl they were describing. They would have also heard from her that she had been assaulted by the fellow who called himself her boyfriend, who then disappears, literally disappears from history. Never sure exactly what happened to him. I think he went off into the military, but that's not clear. So we have a, we have an assault, rape. Uh, we have somebody whose character is not what it's said to be. We have contradictory evidence by the witnesses. That's the facts of the case that were never explored. And then, assuming that the facts might not have carried the day, we go back and we attack the law, the principle. Uh, and that is attackable on lots of different levels, the scientific level being the easiest one. There's lots of people who originally said, well, we think this sterilization is a good thing, who later said, wait a minute, I'm a scientist." I at Johns Hopkins, as were people like Raymond Pearl and others, and I think this law doesn't work. Heredity doesn't work like that. We don't really know what your children are going to be like just because of the way you are. Now, the idea that people inherit everything directly from their parents is too simplistic. It doesn't even work that way. Thomas Hunt Morgan, the first person to win the Nobel Prize in genetics, says it doesn't even work that way in flies. How can we say it works that way in human beings? And so... Irving Whitehead's uh, failure to get at the facts or the law really leave us with a precedent that, as, as you say, is, uh, is deficient and is infamous. What does the Supreme Court do with that? Well, uh, from 1927 until 1942, they don't do much. Um, they occasionally uh, um, uh, mention the case, usually approvingly, Justice Brandeis says, Well, you know, we've decided this case. That's one, you know, that's one that's, that's okay. Um, in 1942, we've got a different question, and that is can you sterilize people in prisons? Uh, and so, after a lengthy, lengthy uh, foray, an attempt to sterilize people in, in Oklahoma's main prison in McAllister, a case gets to the Supreme Court and is decided in 1942 called Skinner versus Oklahoma. And the Skinner case says, no, um, we don't know enough about science, and we really don't want to give the state the power to make a crime and then say somebody will be sterilized because they're going to inherit the propensity for that crime. In reckless hands, one of the justices said, you could wipe out whole people's old tribes, old groups of people. And of course, he's referring to what's going on at the time in Germany with Hitler, who sterilizes close to a half a million, and many of them Jews. So the the lesson of Skinner is, well, you gotta be really careful with sterilization, but then they go back and say, you know, it's different with people who are feeble-minded, and they endorse Buck again. That case goes, goes forward. Um, It's not until the 1960s that the next major case comes up, and that's Griswold versus Connecticut. And that's a case which challenges the Comstock laws. It challenges those laws and the state laws that prohibit the distribution or the mailing or the use of birth control. And it overturns those laws saying that you cannot interfere with these intimate personal decisions that happen within the family. It says, the scope of government, this isn't, this is a, Justice Douglas says, this is a right that precedes the Constitution. This is a right that is inherent in human life. Um, We can't have the government uh, intruding into people's bedrooms. We can't have the government deciding who can or cannot, who should or should not have children. And so, uh, the Skinner case, essentially, uh, Continues to go on in the in is repeated as a, uh, a, a really a um, support of the idea of, of marital intimacy and human uh, privacy um, in overturning of the birth control decisions in the nineteen sixties, and that case is repeated uh, in the Roe case as well. And as uh, as you've said, the Roe case says, well, we know that this this right is not uh, absolute. Most rights in the Constitution are not. And so the right of privacy we're talking about is not absolute. And it footnotes Buck there. It says, you know, we've decided that there's some things you can do. Um, And so with a sort of side glance, it continues to assert that there is a certain amount of power in the judiciary, even in these intimate areas in specific cases. So Unless you understand the way that the reproductive rights cases fit together, particularly the eugenics cases, Buck case, the Skinner case, and the other case, which I haven't mentioned, which is Loving versus Virginia, a case decided in 1967, overturning Virginia's law passed the same day as the Virginia Sterilization Act in 1924, prohibiting people of different races from being married. And that law is overturned again, in, in 1967. So all the eugenics cases that go to the Supreme Court talk about um, marital intimacy, they talk about privacy and reproduction, they talk about the state's power. And if there is any lesson to be gained from reading those cases is that it's a dangerous business to give the government power to decide who has children, who doesn't have children, who gets to decide the government uh, being in control of reproduction has given us some of the most shameful moments in Supreme Court history.
0: Well, Paul, I wanna thank you for joining me today. I also wanna thank you for having written this book and particularly have taken the time to have updated it because I think that as it presents in this new version, it really helps anybody who wants to understand what kind, why we're talking about the Comstock Act today, why it's still in many ways on the books, uh, although it's been modified in some ways. Um, and I want to thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking to Paul A. Lombardo. He's the author of Three Generations No Imbeciles, Eugenics, The Supreme Court, and Buck v. Bell, published by John Hopkins University Press in 2022.